Hello, friends. Welcome. I am so glad to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about a little movement that began brewing in the 19th century. And that pun was intended because many Americans have long enjoyed the pastime of drinking. In fact, by the late 1800s, Americans were drinking three times the amount of alcohol we consume today. Let that sink in for a second. People were seriously drinking massive quantities of alcohol. And even though most beer was less potent than it is today, it was common for people to drink during every meal. And for any occasion, drinking was truly a cornerstone of American culture. But not everyone was a fan. Some people, particularly women, grew concerned about its harmful effects on families and communities. So let's dive in and let's talk about the early rise of the temperance movement in America. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. On a chilly January night in 1901, a group of men sat in a Kansas saloon over their mugs of ale and whiskey when out of the blue, an older woman caught them all by surprise. She burst through the doors and made a beeline for the bar, smashing every bottle of liquor she could get her hands on. The men recovered from their shock quickly. They'd heard about this whirlwind, destructive woman. Her name was Carrie Nation, and for weeks she had been busting up bars all over the state of Kansas. Her antics made headlines. A writer in the weekly Clarion Ledger didn't mince words saying, Mrs. Carrie Nation is giving the saloon people of Kansas a great deal of trouble. She has entered several saloons and failing to induce the proprietors to close them, proceeded to smash the whiskey bottles and glasses. She's sometimes arrested, but this has not deterred her. She is still on the warpath, and the report comes that the saloon men are preparing to barricade their doors on her approach. All are afraid of her. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On March 31st, 1776, Abigail Adams wrote a now famously quoted letter to her husband, John Adams. He was away from home and helping to frame what would become the Declaration of Independence. In her letter, she wrote... I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, We are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. This letter becomes known as Abigail's Remember the Ladies speech, and it is held up as the beginning of the women's rights movement in the United States. Abigail recognized that there was potential in this moment for a new precedent to be set, new ways in which her husband could help shape the country. And it was an opportunity to evolve the roles of women. In colonial America, women's roles in society were dictated by a legal term we've yet to talk about, coverture. Coverture refers to the legal status of women, or more correctly, the fact that women had no legal identity at all. When a girl was born, her legal status and rights were covered under her father's identity. And when she married, she was covered under her husband's. Meaning that when a man and a woman married, they became one legally, and that one was the husband. Married women could not own land or property. They couldn't build their own businesses. They couldn't vote. They couldn't file a lawsuit. They could not claim their own wages if they worked. And they were not even the legal guardians of their children. Lawfully, a woman, her possessions, and her children belonged to her husband. Legally, a woman was her husband's property. And we've seen coverture play out in a number of ways for our first ladies, right? Rachel Jackson could not divorce her first husband. He had to divorce her. Estates, when bequeathed to daughters or widows like Martha Washington's, became the property of their husbands when women married. Historically, European and colonial women were expected to marry, have children, and run their household. The late 17th century saw a rise in an ideology called the cult of domesticity. The idea that a woman's greatness was fulfilled through pursuing a status of wife, mother, and homemaker, and by keeping their piety and purity intact. And coverture was not just a legality, but a coveted aspiration. Girls were taught that moving from their father's protection to their husband's was a woman's true calling in life. But by the time the Revolutionary War ended and the United States of America gained its independence, there was a subtle political and economic shift in the model for womanhood. Instead of being looked upon as property, women were being recognized for their ability to nurture and raise boys who would grow up to strengthen the legitimacy of the new nation. 
giving wealthy white women a basic education became acceptable and encouraged so that they could properly raise their sons. This was a gain for women, but really only slightly. The National Women's History Museum explains that women's education expansion was not meant for their own benefit, but to place them in a position to mold future generations of men into good citizens and civic leaders. The evolution of women's role in society was key to building a strong republic. Women were given a civic duty to perform. They were tasked with having children and raising them well, not just for the prosperity of her husband's lineage, but for the continued health and wealth of the country as a whole. As women began to understand this shift in their role, they pushed back against restrictions that limited their sphere of influence to inside the home. They wanted more, and they began to mobilize to attain it in the earliest days of what would become first wave feminism. In the late 19th century, women's primary focus was to secure their right to gain influence by voting in public elections. But before there was suffrage, there was temperance. Temperance is the practice of restraining one's desires. And in the early 1800s, most American men had no moderation or abstinence, no restraint of desires from the use of alcoholic beverages. So let's rewind a bit and let's take a quick look at the history of alcohol consumption. Nobody knows precisely when humans began to create fermented beverages, but there is early evidence that it was already being crafted in China over 9,000 years ago. Residue in clay pots revealed that people were making alcohol from fermented rice, grapes, and honey. That drink had very low levels of alcohol, and historians believe it was an important part of cultural and political traditions used in rituals and feasting and trading. In the early 12th century, alchemists begin to do deeper experimentation with the process of distillation. It led to an alcohol more concentrated than regular fermented beverages with a much higher alcohol content. These new forms of alcohol were termed spirits, and they were first used as medicine. But over time, they became an important commodity of trade because where beer and wine would spoil fairly quickly, distilled alcohol liquids were much more shelf-stable. The practicality of spirits was exactly what the world needed. For example, in long-distance sea voyages, there was no way to keep fresh water to drink aboard ships. But by adding a small bucket of liquor to a barrel of water, it would keep the water from becoming contaminated, and crews faced less worry about dehydration. Before long, spirits became a popular form of currency, and by the 1600s, alcohol was fueling a robust global trade. But with this capitalist expansion, its role in society grew complicated. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the words of Dwight Schrute, identity theft is not a joke, Jim. But seriously, have you ever had somebody try to steal your credit card number? and then try to make a bunch of fraudulent charges that has happened to me on more than one occasion. If it's happened to you, you know it's a nightmare. Having your personal information on the internet is like giving strangers the key to your front door. Not good. And Delete Me can keep that door locked and your information safe. And I recently found a solution that is a service called Delete Me. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information that you don't want online, and they make sure that it stays off. It is a subscription service that finds your personal info on the web, searches all the databases, and then helps prevent identity theft by removing that information from all of these databases. So when you sign up, you tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted, and then their experts take it from there. They send you a report every month of like, we found your information in the following places and we removed it. More simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount just for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use promo code Sharon at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Sharon, promo code Sharon. When European settlers came to North American shores, they brought with them large amounts of brandy and rum. And while many colonists had deeply religious roots, their beliefs didn't include abstaining from alcohol consumption. Drinking was an accepted part of everyday life at a time when no one knew what contaminants the water held. Moderation was their only rule. American colonists began making their own alcoholic beverages, producing hard ciders, rum, and some forms of wine and beer. But one spirit dominated them all. Whiskey. Corn and wheat farmers could easily generate income by distilling whiskey, and it often brought in a larger profit for farmers and agriculturalists than their crop shares. Fun fact about our first president, George Washington established a large distillery at Mount Vernon, where he produced his own bottles of brandy and whiskey. 
By the early 1800s, there were over 2,000 distilleries in the United States, okay? The United States was still small in the early 1800s, by the way, okay? We're not talking like coast-to-coast -coast Alaska to Florida. 2,000 distilleries in a relatively small geographic area. And together, the 2,000 distilleries produced over 2 million gallons of whiskey each year. Whiskey was cheaper to produce and purchase than beer, wine, cider, or frankly, even milk, coffee, and tea. And Americans leaned in. They consumed incredible amounts of alcohol. In fact, the average amount of alcohol consumed by early Americans may have been more than any other civilization in human history. A great example of this comes from the receipt from a 1787 party given by George Washington in Philadelphia after the Constitutional Convention. Many of the framers were there, including Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. And the receipt tells us that there were 55 guests and that they drank. Please sit down. <laughs> hold on. Hold on to your hats. Okay, the 55 guests drank 114 bottles of wine, 22 bottles of porter, 12 bottles of beer, 8 bottles of whiskey, 8 bottles of hard cider, and 7 bowls of alcoholic punch. <laughs> it's absurd. It's an absurd amount of alcohol. It makes college parties look tame. Can you imagine the amount of tolerance that they had to build up even to be able to consume that amount of alcohol, like their livers were working overtime. But it was also not just the elite class that was drinking high quantities of alcohol. Drinking was a widespread pastime. In 1790, Americans consumed an average of six gallons of liquor annually. And I say Americans and not adults because there was no minimum drinking age in the late 1700s, right? No one was policing who drank and at what age. By 1830, that six-gallon figure rose to over seven gallons. In contrast, Americans today consume about two gallons of liquor in a year. In his book, The Alcohol Republic, historian W.J. Rohrbach explains alcohol was pervasive in American society across all class lines. Americans drank at home and abroad, alone and together, at work and play, in fun and in earnest. They drank from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn. Taverns were filled every night. They drank with meals before meals, after meals, and while working. And I'm sure you remember from previous episodes where we have talked about how people in early America voted in taverns. Drinking was embedded deeply into the American framework. Europeans who visited the young nation were appalled at what they witnessed. One visitor told a British newspaper, Americans are certainly not as sober as the French or Germans, but perhaps about on a level with the Irish or more. Foreign visitors weren't the only ones who were judgmental about this lush behavior. Some Americans voiced their concerns. Late in his life, John Adams wrote to some friends, It is mortifying 
that we Americans should exceed all other people in the world in this degrading, beastly vice of intemperance. Not that Adams was first in line to moderate or give up his own drinking habits, mind you. He reputedly started each morning with a gill of hard cider. And while a gill is around three ounces, just a few sips, he also once attempted to use his diplomatic station to bring several hundred bottles of French Bordeaux into the U.S. without paying taxes on them. He failed, by the way, and ultimately got Thomas Jefferson, who had dual citizenship, to do it for him. There were a variety of reasons for Americans to drink so much and so often. In addition to the lack of decontamination practices that would regulate safe drinking water, alcohol helped men as they worked outdoors through the cold months. Employers would provide employees with warming whiskey so they could keep laboring despite the weather. There was also a widespread belief that alcohol was helpful in settling a sour stomach. And this was important because not only did Americans drink a lot, they ate a lot too. They'd eat as much as they could, as fast as they could, and then wash their meals down with liquor, assuming it acted as an antacid. Europeans would bring stopwatches on their visits, and as a sport, time how fast Americans ate. One aghast visitor said, as soon as food is set on the table, they fall upon it like wolves on an unguarded herd. It is true that even today, Americans have a reputation for eating quickly, for not slowly savoring their meals, as is prominent in other European cultures, right? And taverns were the center of social life. and They played a very prominent role in early America. They were public spaces where men gathered to discuss news, organize movements. They would drink and play cards. And time spent in those bars grew exponentially in the 1800s. And drunkenness became rampant. Extreme drinking was recognized as a disruption to society, but it was seen as an individual problem, not a cultural one. Social occasions like weddings, barn raisings, elections, christenings, and funerals were all celebrated as opportunities to indulge. Hard drinking was everywhere. And the women at home and living under coverture grew frustrated. Men who drank to excess developed health problems. Many grew violent, starting fights in taverns or assaulted their wives at home. Under coverture, domestic violence and assault was legal. Men could harm their wives and suffer no legal consequences. And because alcohol wasn't banned in many labor-intensive workplaces, drunkenness caused accidents, permanent injuries, and a loss of income for families. And even in less extreme cases, men would habitually drink up all of their wages at the taverns after work, leaving nothing for their families. Impoverished households grew to alarming levels. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what was the one public space where it was socially acceptable for women to congregate during the 1800s? Church. Women began mobilizing and exchanging ideas with the support of their religious institutions. Through the churches, women began to call for total abstinence from all liquor. They worked to persuade men to sign abstinence pledges, which were elaborate pieces of paper indicating that the signer was committed to, quote, the fruits of temperance, domestic comfort, favor of God, peace and plenty, health of body and soul, and eternal happiness. The fledgling temperance movement was not messing around, y'all. They were not asking people to, like, cut back a little. No, they wanted people to stop drinking altogether. The earliest temperance organizations seemed to have sprung up in the northern states, in Saratoga, New York, in 1808, and then in Massachusetts in 1813. But the movement spread quickly under the continued influence of the churches, so that by 1833, there were 6,000 local temperance societies across multiple U.S. states. In 1826, a national organization, the American Temperance Society, formed to convince the public that alcohol led to the loss of morality in men, which destroyed communities and threatened the very stability of the country. Just under a decade later, in 1835, over 2 million men had signed temperance pledges to curb their alcohol consumption. Temperance organizations continued to push for success, and by the 1840s, drinking had dropped to half of what it had been in the 1820s. But as community alcohol consumption saw a dip, there was one place it still flowed freely— and in excess, politics. After the Civil War, temperance organizations began to evolve their efforts. Instead of relying on the word of men who signed temperance pledges, they concentrated on education and lobbying for new laws that would act as a barrier to excessive drinking. But in the 1830s, not only were there no federal laws that limited alcohol consumption, there weren't political campaigning regulations either. Today, we have lots of state and federal rules about campaigning tactics, and political candidates can't, you know, like, directly bribe voters on their way to the polls anymore. (laughs) But in 1830, voting day was a complete free-for-all. Candidates would set up booths at the polls and hand out alcohol to voters in an effort to gain their vote. Author and journalist George D. Prentice wrote a piece on voting in the South after witnessing an 1830s election. In it, he said, an election in Kentucky lasts three days. During that period, whiskey and apple toddy flow through our cities and villages like the Euphrates and ancient Babylon. A number of runners, each with a whiskey bottle poking its long neck from his pocket, were busily employed bribing voters. However, 
the newly formed Whig party recognized that all this drunken behavior and revelry at the polls didn't exactly lead to the best outcomes for them. The Whigs had a strong temperance electorate made up of Protestants, evangelical Christians, business owners, and even though they couldn't vote, their persuasive wives. As the new political party mobilized in the 1830s, they catered to their predominantly northern upper-class supporters by embracing the concept of moralization, a movement to persuade people to change their behavior by making good choices for themselves and not because the law dictated the change. A good number of Whig members carried the opinion that it was disrespectful to both God and country to be a heavy drinker. The opposing party, the Democrats, whose electorate was made up of mostly Southern landholders, the working class, and rural settlers, were not pleased with the idea of a morality policing government. Their slogan became, the government that governs best is the government that governs least. It was the 19th century equivalent of, get off my lawn. (laughs) They didn't want anyone, especially the federal government, dictating their way of life or their rights around their property, banking, enslavement practices, or drinking customs. As the temperance movement grew, Southern states began to look at it as a slippery slope. If the federal government had the power to enact prohibition laws that shut down taverns or ban liquor sales, the overreach might expand into other areas as well. Nevertheless, the Whigs persisted with their temperance agenda, and in 1850, the party influenced the northern state of Maine to pass prohibition laws that banned the production, sale, and consumption of alcoholic beverages. The domino had been flicked, and over the course of the next four years, 12 more states passed prohibition laws. They were all in the North and the Midwest. Encouraged by their gains with temperance, many mid-19th century activists were ready to mobilize for greater freedoms. They had been influencing changes surrounding women's education, prohibition, and even the abolition of enslavement. But it was all behind-the-scenes work. Women were not yet able to impact laws in the same direct way that men could, by voting. In the summer of 1848, both men and women activists gathered in western New York to hold the first official women's rights meeting called the Seneca Falls Convention. At the convention, they developed a list of things they wanted to change and based much of it on the Declaration of Independence. They sought for more reforms for women in education, politics, and labor. And they also advocated for the abolition of slavery and the right to vote. These early suffragists referenced the success of temperance campaigns, using them as a guide on how to raise money, hold public meetings, conduct petition drives, and deal with hostile audiences. Four years later, some of the most famous early women's rights activists convened again in Western New York, this time in Rochester, to hold the New York Temperance Convention. They continued to link abstinence from alcohol with the rights of women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton addressed four to 500 people and called for the complete rejection of alcohol, saying, let us touch not, taste not, handle not the unclean thing. 
She advocated for divorce reform and the need to protect wives and children from their abusive, confirmed, drunkard husbands. Another group picked up the mantle of the temperance movement, too. American evangelical Christians cultivated a belief central to their religious faith that a pure relationship with God was obtainable only through alcohol abstinence. American evangelical Christianity believed in the creation of a pure and sober world, and this principle became the driving force behind the formation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the aftermath of the Civil War. The Constitution of the WCTU called for the entire prohibition of the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquors as a beverage. WCTU members were more aggressive in their tactics to police the drinking habits of men than their predecessors had been. They held pray-ins at local bars. Women surrounded the buildings, linked hands, and spent hours praying that the businesses would close. They hoped that their presence would deter men from entering. And the bar-smashing Carrie Nation would become one of their most famous members. Despite political tension and different temperance ideologies between Whigs and Democrats, the movement had little effect on the highest office in the land during the mid-1800s. Presidents Jackson, Van Buren, and Tyler did not engage in the wet or dry movements and saw no reason to spend their political capital giving it their attention. Alcohol flowed freely for guests in the White House, and Julia Tyler, the glamorous first lady for eight months in 1844, filled her holiday parties with booze-laced eggnog and popped hundreds of bottles of champagne at her balls. But that changed when First Lady Sarah Polk, wife of 11th President James Polk, entered the White House. And in our next episode, we'll learn about Sarah's moral and religious influence on the office of the presidency and how it turned the tide of temperance towards prohibition. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Work It's Interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider sharing it on social media or leaving us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform? All of those things help podcasters out so much. The show is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson, Valerie Hoback, and Sharon McMahon. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder, and it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>